0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So we'll start by going around and saying our names. Name I'm David, Schwartz, Justin. Justin, Carl, George, My name Larry, Scott, Darren, Todd, Michael, Edmund, Tommy, <coughs> Paul. Frank, Louis, Joe, Paul. Mark. Bill. Peter. Bob. Lance. Bill. Mark. Dennis. Christopher. Paul. Dean, Jack. Holly. Jay. Matt. Ed. Steve. Robert. John. Evans. Dave. Robin. Greg. Gary. Ray. Ray. Sujet. <laughs> Great, okay,
1: and, uh... Hey, I'm Rabina. <laughs> <laughs> of
0: course, I was about to introduce you I know, you. I'm just checking. <laughs> Great. Uh, yes, our speaker today is Rabina Kirtin, Venerable mm-hmm. Rabina Kirtin. She is, uh, uh, has been a Tibetan Buddhist nun mm-hmm. since uh, taking orders, I guess you call them, in 1970, uh, Eight? 1978. Oh, mm-hmm. 1978. And uh, she's been working for the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition. She was first the directing editor of uh, the publication house, I guess, and then uh, also the editor of the Mandala magazine. And she's also now director of the Prison Project, um, and which helps thousands of prisoners in the United States and Australia uh, with their Buddhist practice, and so
1: with that, please welcome. Thank you for coming. Okay, thanks very much, everybody. I think I was here, wasn't it, five years ago? I couldn't believe. Mm-hmm. I thought it was last year, but we all agreed time goes fast. You were here five years ago. I, know, I can't believe. Five years ago. I know, it's amazing. Yes, five <laughs> years. I thought it was last year, it was two <laughs> years max. Five years. Amazing. Yeah. So. Um, over my double espresso this morning with Paul and Ali, we were were thinking maybe we could talk about the mind and kind of look into a little bit about uh, the difference between what we can simply say are the kind of destructive, unhappy emotions and the positive, constructive emotions. Because I think often we get mm, a bit mixed up. But first let's just put it in some kind of context. One of the really nice packagings of Buddha's teachings is called the three uh, three trainings or the three higher (laughs) trainings. And the third one is, is finally the point, like the bottom line, which is called wisdom. And we'll talk about that, but essentially it means, you know, the, the state of mind that is now in sync with the way the universe is. Buddha would say that right now there's this big, big division between the way we see things, the way we experience things, and how things actually are. I mean, as we know as Buddhists, this is, a, this is kind of a Buddhist deal, you know, how he talks. But, uh, and so, the, the, the bottom, the, the final thing, the accomplishment, is the accomplishment of this extraordinary level of mind. You know, the Buddha would say we all innately possess the potential to achieve, um, which brings with it, like this clarity, this wisdom that sees everything as it is, but also the byproduct of our own contentment, our own fulfillment, our own joy, our own happiness, whatever you like. So, in order to get this, we need what's called single pointed concentration, you know, shamata, shine in Tibetan. Calm, abiding—they use the term in English—but it's, you know, it's essentially a state of mind that we don't even posit as existing in all the Western models of the mind. It's this extraordinarily subtle, refined level of mind, of consciousness, that we can access through utilizing Buddha's very marvelous, sophisticated psychological techniques called meditation, that um, that enable us to actually get that wisdom, you know. But in order to get that, we need the first one, which is called morality. So, what's morality? Well, simply speaking, in Buddhist terms, I mean, it's, you know, this is a Buddhist way of articulating it. You could say morality is, you know, um, uh, actions or karma, the word means action, of body, speech and mind. Or as I noticed they said in the little marriage ceremony of Charles and Camilla yesterday, did you watch? Uh-huh. It was very nice. And in, in there, you know, it said that they were confessing their naughty, their naughty actions. Remember that nice prayer they said? And, and, they, and, you know, and as the priest said, you know, any, the, the, only the, wrong, the whatever they said, sins of, uh, what do they say? They say it in the Christian thing, of um, uh, uh, bo- uh, thought, wor- thought, word, and deed. I remember from being a Catholic, that's how they say. So Buddha's the same. He talks about you know, actions of body, speech, and mind. It means the same. You know? So morality is, act- is when we are doing actions of body, speech, and mind that are essentially um, non harmful to others that's the almost you could say that's a simple way of defining the most basic level even a passive level of morality which is already a marvelous level of morality if, if if the whole world refrained from doing actions of body speech and mind that harmed others i mean what a marvelous world it would be then of course you know you could you could add to that level of morality if if you look at the um, you know in from the mahayana point of view the, bird, the buddha says a bird needs two wings we've got the wisdom wing which is all the work we would do um, on the mind to you know through you, in this one packaging these three trainings to develop that wisdom to remove all the obscurations from the mind then the other wing is the compassion wing which is so you know from the morality from the point of view of the wisdom wing is this refraining from harming others with you know with body speech and mind which is what morality would mean then the, the, the proactive level of morality is actually doing positive actions of body speech and mind that benefit others so these are two ways of talking about morality but let's look at even the most basic level, which is sort of like junior school, you know. The active one of benefiting is a bit like high school. We've got to get the junior school first. So let's look at this one of morality. Because let's, let's face it, most of us aren't probably going in this life be prepared or qualified to go off to the mountains to get you know, a single point of concentration in order to realise wisdom, to realise emptiness. Probably most in this life won't do that. And most of us, therefore, are, are very occupied at the level of the practice of morality, which itself is already marvellous level yeah. It's, it's like the essential daily life of being a Buddhist, you know? Or at least the daily life of being a decent human being, and maybe in our case, the tools we use are Buddha's tools. So let's look at morality. Well, one way of saying it, at the, very, the very first level, like, you know, before junior school even, you could say the first level of practicing morality is the morality of refraining from harming with our body and speech. With the actions and deeds, you know, wor- words and deeds. Because let's face it, that's what impacts on others, isn't it? What you know, the the interface between others is, is, is our body and our speech. So there's a saying among some of the Tibetan practitioners. They say, when you're with others, you watch your body and your speech. And when you're on your own, you can watch your mind. So as we all know, you know, Buddha would say that everything comes from the mind. Everything emanates from the mind. You know. I mean, if I, you know, punch him in the nose, we kind of can deduce there must be something in my mind that's, that's expressing that punch. I mean, I wouldn't be feeling blissful in my mind thinking, isn't he a marvelous person and how I love him, and then go punch. You know, the fist expresses what's in the mind. So we can, it's fairly obvious. But I think because in our Western culture, we're, so, we're not used to looking at the mind. We're not, we don't even pay any credibility. We don't give any, any credibility to the mind. We say, oh, it's only the mind, you know. As if somehow that's nothing. It's only actions that count. So I think we, so. One of our main problems, you know, I think in the West um, about our mind is that we don't even know how to see what's happening inside there. You know, but nevertheless, okay. The very first level of practice before we begin the marvelous job of being able to notice what's going on in our mind and learn to slowly develop its extraordinary potential, which is the real heart job of a Buddhist, we need to look at the body and speech one. But never. So I wanted to just, just to say that, but I want to talk about the mind, because let's face it, if the body and speech, and I can see in my own life, you know, anger, for example, you know, there's a fairly volatile um, emotion that most of us have in one to one degree or another. And I can see since a little girl, you know, that if I that that it was so explosive, it was coming from here, the mind but then it would because it was so explosive and so spontaneous my body and speech were you know doing their thing all the time so until I could begin to control my body and speech like zip my lip and keep my hands to myself no way did I have any opportunity to really notice the mind or forget about noticing it but to tr- no way did I have an opportunity to try and change it it's impossible you know so the heart job i think of being a buddhist is true you can say it's the body and speech one this is major but the heart job is the mind. That's the, and that's I think the real distinctive characteristics of Buddha, Buddha's practices, Buddha's teachings, is his, you know, in my own, in my words, you know, his own kind of his marvelous, very sophisticated understanding of the mind. So maybe just to refresh us, you know, let's look at what the mind is and what the mind is not. So okay, I, as you know, obviously I'm talking from the, you know, from my training in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which is the Mahayana, and which comes from the great monastic university tradition in India you know the great um, in, in Nalanda monastery so as you know probably the, one of the emphasis in, much, in many of the traditions in Tibet is, is this monastic university tradition where they study very deeply and extensively the philosophy and the psychology and the metaphysics of, that have developed over the centuries as commentaries on the Buddha's teachings so just personally I find that very helpful approach as a basis for my practice as a basis for the core practice of working on my mind so let's look at what. So from this perspective, let's look at what the mind is. You know, I know in all the different traditions there are many, many different uh, um, discussions about this. So you know, given that you might be a Zen or something else, just this is from the, the way they talk in the you know the monastic university, university tradition in Tibet, coming from the Mahayana tradition in India. So okay, in this in this tradition, mind is used word, virtually synonymously with the word consciousness which I think already from our Western perspective gives it a very nice flavor. You know? it, it's, it shows that it's something more than merely the brain or the intellect, which is how we tend to use the word in the West. So that's the first thing. Secondly, and this is, you know, it's really crucial for us that we really want to see what is saying, that mind is not physical. Mind is not your brain. Anger doesn't, is not, you know, depression, anger, these things... They, are, they can be hugely affected, impacted, which we can see from our experiences, by what goes on in the body. You know, we all know that if you go to the doctor and you say you've got depression, it gives you your serotonin, it calms the chemicals down, or whatever they say the imbalance is, and then you feel less depressed. So we can easily deduce from this, which is what the Western models of the mind do, that therefore depression is a chemical imbalance. But the, Buddha, the Buddha's way of saying it would be that the depra- depression is, is, is in the mind, it's the mind, and we'll look at it. It's, it's a series. It's, 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 it's um, not physical, but it's obviously affected by the body, because the body and mind work very interdependently. Obviously, you know, in, intimately interconnected. So, you know, if you were to go to your Tibetan doctor, it'd be the same thing, or your Chinese doctor. They'd feel your pulses. They'd see you, you know your wind energies are berserk. So they give you some little, some medic, you know, some herbal pills, which you take, and over time it would calm the, the berserk wind energies down, which would then impact on your mind and make you less anxious. So mind and body are, in Buddhist terms, definitely are not the same entity, but clearly are interdependent, you know. and In one sense, certainly at the grosser level of the way the mind works, and this is again using a little kind of one approach from, the, from this tradition, that we've got, you know, at the grosser level of consciousness, which is the only level we usually function at, which is the conceptual and the sensory, we can see that body and mind are inseparable. Just like, just like, you know, you can say the main cause of the apple tree is the apple seed, but you can hold an apple seed up here for 22 years. Well, honey, you won't get an apple tree. <laughs> you understand my point? You need the earth and the water and the soil, but you would never make the mistake of thinking, the, you know, what, therefore, the, uh, you know, the apple seed is the, earth, the is the soil, you know, the, the only thing that's necessary, or that the, the, the water and the and sun are the apple seed. They're not, you know, you've got to have the seed there. So the Buddhist one is, the mind is like the seed, The mind is the main thing. The mind is the source. But at the gross level, it functions interdependently, or on the basis of the body, the physical world, environment, and so on and so forth. So this is a crucial point. I mean, for us Buddhists, the experiential implication of this is: yes, the world might be a horrible place, and yes, people are mean to me, and yes, this good thing happens, but that's not the main cause. And yes, the the chemicals in my body are are out of balance, but that's not the main thing. I've got a, you know, that's that's a strong one. But the key one is my own mind. Let's investigate that. What is the depression? What's going on in here? What is the anger? What is the loneliness? What is the jealousy? What is it? Let's look at it, not just the physical thing. That's crucial, you know. So take your serotonin, no problem. But then just take it to allow your chemicals to calm down so now you can do the job of working on your mind. This is the deal. So, the, in other words, the implication of Buddha's assertion that mind isn't physical, which you can sort of go off into and look at it very deeply in a philosophical point of view, it's not meant to be just something... The implication is experiential. It's not just meant, it is an interesting concept, you know, but it's not just meant to be some interesting concept that you think about and learn mm-hmm. and how interesting. You've got to see the implication of it. And that's quite empowering when we, when we can really see that, you know. The other, of course, the other crucial point in Buddhism, which is fundamental to Buddha, which we mightn't give too much thought to, and which again, and it's again the experiential implication of which that really is the point is that mind does not come from someone else. Oh no, okay, first that mind or consciousness, these are words that don't refer just to the intellect. You know, if you, most Tibetans, if you say the mind, they'll point here to the heart, you know. So what, what is me- meant by mind here? Using you know the broad view in Buddhism, mind or consciousness is a word. That, the words that are used to refer to the entire spectrum of our inner experiences: thoughts, intellect, feelings, emotions, unconscious, subconscious, <clears throat> intuition, instinct, the whole deal. That's mind. But it's used in a more sort of tasty way. This word mind, you know, Psycho- your, your experiences themselves. It's a very subjective kind of use of the word. So the other crucial point and again what i'm saying is the implications of this other point is that mind doesn't come from anyone else you know if you're a, if you're a christian or a muslim or if you're a materialist which most of us would be you know the latter let's say we would all agree on one thing actually which is interesting that someone else created us so if you're a materialist mummy and daddy created you you know And if you're a Christian or a Muslim, well, God created you. Well, Buddha doesn't say this. He says that you don't come, you know, your mind does not come from anyone else, a superior being or, your, you know, inferior mum and dad. You know, your body, sure thing, your mother and father gave you a body. How kind. That's fairly evident. The egg and sperm come together, you know, in your mummy's womb or in a petri dish, however we were conceived. (laughs) I mean, probably most of us conceived the old-fashioned way. Um, you know, so what the Buddhist deal is, the Christian one would be, let's say, at the time of conception in your mother's womb, God puts a soul there. If you're a materialist, you are only the egg and sperm. But if you're a Buddhist, the Buddha's view, and this is where he comes, this is where he's distinctly different, he would say this consciousness, this mind. You know, this, and they often use the term mental continuum. Or like, so this, basically it's like a continuity of mental moments. And if we all had perfect memory, we know, we would trace back our thoughts and feelings and emotions, this river of mental moments, inexorably back to the first moment, wouldn't we, in, at conception, when Robina mm-hmm. began. So what caused Robina to begin, in other words, what caused that egg and sperm to come together, not just go down the toilet with the rest, was the entry into that egg and sperm of a subtler level, of the same continuity of consciousness. In other words, if you trace back the egg and sperm, you'd, go back to, you'd end up in back in mummy's and daddy's bodies. But if you trace back your consciousness, all your thoughts, feelings, emotions, like as this river of mental moments, you, you, you'd go back to the previous moment before conception, your consciousness was there. Clearly not at the same gross level because his body wasn't there then, functioning at the grosser level. One has subtler, more refined levels of consciousness. So the Buddhist deal is that this consciousness is your own. It doesn't come from mum and dad. It doesn't come from God. You know, which is a, is it's and the teachings in it, you know, are really extensive. The teachings on karma and on the consciousness and what its nature is and so on are quite extensive. In, the, in in you know, you can go into them very deeply. But again, the real point here from this for me, which is most empowering, which is what gives us the power to know we can change our minds, is that it, my mind is mine. My anger is mine. My jealousy is mine. My depression is mine. Not even my body's, you know, doesn't come directly from the body, does not come directly from mum and dad or God or someone else, you know. This is the real point. And of course, as we all know in our lives, this is the view we all instinctively hold. I didn't ask to get born, excuse me. That's how we feel, isn't it? It's not my fault, you know. How dare my mother and father decide to make me and plonk me in this lousy world. You see my point? I mean, it's quite an interesting concept. So, you know, when I learn my Catholic catechism, well, who made me? Well, God made me. But if i got a Buddhist catechism, Buddha's saying, well, honey, I'm sorry, you made you, you know, mm-hmm. which is this, the one of the consciousness and the law that determines this, the way that consciousness or that mind experiences things from moment to moment. This is just Buddha's deal, you know. This is Buddha's creative principle. The law that determines it is this law of karma. This is, you know, this is the, this is the thing. So we can talk about karma, but I think let's talk about the mind, okay, and, and, and experientially, these uh, psychological states that we all think of if we think of our mind, you know. So again, a, an interesting context for this is another package of Buddha's teachings called the Four Noble Truths. And the third one, you know, is Buddha's assertion that we can be free of suffering. As we know, the Four Noble Truths are talked about in the context of suffering. And so the third one is Buddha's this extraordinary, actually very radical, assertion that every living being innately has the potential to be free of suffering. But another way of saying that is to be full of happiness. I mean, free from suffering means full of happiness. We might walk around saying, oh, I want to be free from suffering. It sounds a bit abstract. But hey, I want to be happy, please. This we can all say. you know? And so again, if I'm a Christian, uh, yes, happiness is possible, but necessarily only when you go to heaven with God. If we're a materialist, it's a kind of bit of a conflict for us. On the one hand, we never stop every second trying to get happy. Everything, every, you know, every every action of body, speech and mind that we have is determined by our, you know, is is qualif what do you call, um, is, is, is determined by our wish to be happy. Everything we do is that and to be free of suffering. But on the other hand, if we're materialists, we'll look cynically at the world and say, oh, come on, forget about us. Happiness is not possible. But we never stop trying. So it's kind of a conflict. So for a Buddhist, Buddha says, sure, happiness is possible. But he's not saying it's necessarily when you die. He's not saying, like Christians do, that it's necessarily in that you, can't, you know, when you are beyond this body. Buddha would say, mind is mind is mind, whether it's in this body or out of this body. And the, we have the capability, using Buddha's techniques, especially the meditation techniques and the practice of morality, to fundamentally change our mind, remove the causes of suffering from our mind, develop the causes of happiness within our mind to develop it to its amazing potential. The word nirvana just means that, you know. It's not heaven. It's not some kind of lovely place, you know, or boring place probably that we've got to give up sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll in delicious samsara, which is how we think in our fundamentalist way, you know. Kind of we want to be nice Buddhists, but we don't really want to give up samsara because we think of it as all where the happiness is and nirvana is this boring place. <laughs> but actually it's not like that, you know, clearly. Nirvana's a word. really using it simply, that is a word that refers to the mind of the person who's fully developed all this extraordinary potential that we all possess innately and remove completely all the pollution, all the, potent, all the suffering. <clears throat> this is how, you know, how one is talking so, you know, we, the word psychology wasn't coined back then, but more than anything, t- truly not a joke to say that Buddha is this amazing psychologist. Buddha's dealing with nothing other than the mind, you know. So, okay, if it is true then, as Buddha would assert, that I, we all got the potential to be free of suffering, to be full of happiness, to, be, to, d- to develop to perfection, you know, you could say this. Then we ought, you know, then, and, and we think, well, that's nice, I want that, please. Then we ought to know what it is that prevents us from having it, even right now. So that's the first noble truth. Hey, there is suffering. And then, so we need to know what suffering is and identify it very exactly, precisely, you know. I think we have a. Just, Yeah, on this. But the the, the precision and clarity and depth of analysis that we all know that we need to employ to investigate the meaning of microphones and tables and how to, you know, floors and architecture and science is exactly the precision and clarity and depth of analysis that Buddha would demand we use to understand the mind. And I think when we get into spiritual terms, and again, this is the kind of a dualistic world we live in, we get all kind of cosmic and we lose our common sense, you know. We think it's all kind of trippy and wow and far out and beyond. But really, Buddha's not like that. I mean, there's all the religious packaging. I mean, look at us, you know. But really, this scientific approach that we think we invented in the West, we materialists, is really exactly the approach that Buddha uses. But it's very hard to see that because we can't see past the kind of religious packaging. But it's really important to do that, you know. So the precision and clarity we need here is to investigate exactly what is suffering. Which we'll do. This is discussing the mind now. The second kind, especially, is dealing in directly with the mind. And then the second noble truth is absolutely fundamental, because if we use the analogy of water, you know, I better remember. I've only got an hour, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I'm, I'm coming. Okay, I'm trying to give some background, and then I'll get to it. Okay, so um, the uh, what was I saying? Oh,
0: it's right. like water. Okay, thank you very much. The
1: analogy of water, okay? The third noble truth is Buddha saying, hey guys, your water can be free of pollution. So it's as if we've had water for so long, but it's been, it's been polluted that we now just think of, that's what water is. Sort of like we know water is H2O, and the pollution is actually an additive, it's separate, and therefore not innate innate to the water. But it's like our water, our mind has been polluted for so long, we just think, oh, well, this is who I am. Wrong, Buddha says. The nature of mind is innately pure. And another way simply of saying this is the positive qualities are innate within us. They're at the core of our being. And this again, the implications of this are mind-blowing. Because the the way we are now, the, the way we hold our sense of self, it's actually, it's like we incorporate all the pollution, we incorporate the misery, we incorporate the suffering, we incorporate all the negative, unhappy qualities into our sense of self and we think, that's who I am. And that's the way the West does it too. I mean, all our models of the mind say this, you know. But Buddha would say, no, they're separate. We have, this is why he says we have the potential to change. If the, if the pollution was innate to the water, how could you ever change it? You could not you know if it is we know it's h2o two bits of h one bit of o but if it were h2o p27 or something for pollution you know then of course you can't separate the pollution it's just what water is this is an important point what the mind is buddha says our own mind is innately pure which simply means psychologically all the positive qualities so what is it that then that prevents us from being this marvelous person that we have the potential to be is the presence in the mind this is you know of the pollution And so the causes of suffering, the second noble truth, points to this one. There are two causes, Buddha says. Karma, past actions, that set us up to have the present suffering. And that's the same reason why we're happy. Past actions set us up now, imprinted in the mind, left in the past, come along, now ripen, and set us up for happiness as well. So the causes of happiness are the same as the causes of suffering. But the trouble is when we think of karma, we often go, why do bad things happen to me? We agonize over it. But we never say, why do good things happen to me? We do not agonize over that. Agonize. I mean, the causes are the same. Past karma and then present states of mind. So in the context of suffering, the second one is what I want to talk about. So this is the second noble truth, causes of suffering, and the second one is called delusions. And this is referring to the unhappy, unproductive, destructive, disturbing emotions. This is the way the words we'd use. And these are variations of words they use in Tibetan actually. So let's look at those. Because they are the source of suffering. They're the key to why we suffer. Therefore, if we do have this potential, we ought to get be very precise in identifying the causes of this, because if you can't identify the causes of pollution, you're going to keep having pollution as much as you keep taking it out of your water. You've got to know what causes it because then you won't do it again. So the, the key to Buddhist practice, the heart of Buddhist practice in the mind is implied in the second noble truth. You don't just hear these words like, oh, nice religion, yeah, we know the full noble truth, oh, yes, it's this and that and blah, blah, you know. Here it is really <laughs> tasty, really experiential because this is the heart of Buddhist practice. This is where we begin to put our money where our mouth is, you Dealing with the mind. So, okay, this mind of mind. A simple way of saying, of describing the components of the mind, is in terms of it's three, it's three. There's no fourth category. Positive states of mind, negative states of mind, neutral states of mind. Let's leave the neutral alone, and then we come down to the positive and the negative. So this is like learning to distinguish between the, the pure water and the pollution. Right now, they're so mixed. When you look at it, you can't see the difference. So right now with our minds in our own self, our positive and negative emotions are so mixed together. They're like milk and water. We mostly can't distinguish. Certainly when the mind's fairly quiet. When there's very strong emotions, we can kind of go, oh, duh, there's the jealousy, there's the anger. But even when we do say that, part of the problem is we, we, we have very different definitions of those things. So let's look at the Buddha's approach. He makes this clear distinction between positive and negative states of mind. The positive ones or productive or beneficial or appropriate states of mind. He says we need to, you know, recognize and distinguish those from the so-called negative, non-productive, painful, unhappy states of mind. Why? Not any moralistic reason. Buddha's not being moralistic, you know. There's no blame, kind of dualistic blame, victim mode in Buddhism. We all have that deep in the bones of our being. It's just the way ego works, ironically, you know. It's just how we are, but he doesn't talk this way. So we need to distinguish between the positive and the negative emotions, and really precisely, really clearly. Because in our culture, you know, because we bring all this stuff into our persona and say, that's who we are innately, we're all born this way, what can we do? So we kind of throw our hands in the air and think, anger is natural, love is natural, we've all got a bit of both. As long as there's not too much anger, you're an okay human being. That's a bit like saying, well, as long as there's not too much pollution in the water, then it's okay water. No, water can be completely separated from the pollution. Or more precisely, the pollution can be removed completely. That's the radical point that Buddha's making. So it's important to hear this, you know. So that means, if the cause of suffering, one of them is the, pre- is the state is the presence in my own mind... Of unhappy states of mind of emotions (coughs) that do not come from mummy and daddy, that do not come from God that are not at the core of my being and are not mainly coming from the mean person out there who did that thing to me then it really demands we have to own it ourselves without guilt, without shame but with great courage to learn to understand it on the basis of the real of the wish and the confidence that hey, I don't need this stuff I can go beyond it this is the point, you know, this is the point this is the way of talking Buddha's whole thing in down-to-earth, ordinary, you know, present 21st-century words. So then what are these negative states of mind because of the cause of my suffering? Well, you could say effectively, from the point of view of the presentation of the Four Noble Truths, effectively the main cause of suffering is called attachment. This word, you know that we all throw around. Everybody uses it as a real... We hear it loud and clear when we hear Buddha talking. But, oh, my goodness, everybody in this room would have a different definition if we asked each of us to write it down now because we haven't all been to, you know, attachment school. We've all been to numbers school, and if we all were asked, what is seven, if we didn't know the meaning, we'd be embarrassed and we'd be quiet, right? But every one of us in this room would agree on the definition of seven because we've all been to this... You know, we all know math is important. But we haven't learned how to define love, attachment, anger. Everybody has a different definition. And we just think, oh, that's cool. But, I mean, no wonder we have confusion. You know, if you asked for seven apples and I gave you five, we'd be really confused with each other. But if I say I love you and you say you love me, and we, th- we think we're agreeing. Well, excuse me. We've both got a huge agenda, <laughs> don't we, of what we mean, our own definitions, our own expectations, because of all the baggage we bring to that simple word. You know? And this is where the Buddha is so... Is, And it's it's so clear. We need to be clear about these things. So you don't need to agree with Buddha's view. You can decide on Jung or Freud instead if you like. You're the boss, you know. Buddha's not asking us to believe what he says. And for me, in my own experience, this is the benefit of, you know, studying the the texts and the teachings and the psychology because you can get some kind of real ground in what, what Buddha's meaning by those words, not just say the words. Oh, yeah, I've got to give up attachment, you know. So right now when we use the word attachment... We mostly use it interchangeably with the word love, with the word happiness, with the word pleasure. So then, when we hear Buddha say, Sorry, guys, you can't be happy unless you get rid of it, we go, Oh, I've got to give up my heart. I've got to give up my happiness, as Lama Zoka says. Not true, you know. Love is not attachment. Happiness is not attachment. Pleasure is not attachment. So let's look at what are, what is attachment, and more broadly, what are the characteristics of these unhappy states of mind that we need to recognize in order to become happy which is what we want not to mention in order to benefit others which is also what we want so okay Some of, one of the characteristics of the unhappy states of the negative states of mind and this is indicated by another synonym in, 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 psycho- in Buddhist psychology that they use in Tibetan is the term simply disturbing emotion disturbing emotion I mean, we might not we use that word every day. Oh, I've got such a disturbing emotion today. We wouldn't say that. We'd say, I feel terrible. I feel paranoid or something. I feel depressed or whatever. We'd give a name to one of those disturbing emotions. But it's so obvious. One of the characteristics of these unhappy emotions, negative emotions, is that they are disturbing. Well, to whom? Well, to me. You see my point. When I have it, forget about the person I harm with it. That just by looking into my mind, if we're truly honest with ourselves, based on this genuine wish to develop my marvellous potential, not based on any kind of self-hate, is I can't help but notice that when I'm angry, I am disturbed. I mean, it is so obvious. But one, because we're convinced that anger is in my persona just naturally and I can't change it. Two, because I think mummy made me this way. And three, anyway, it's your fault. You see my point? And four, we think it's physical. There are four reasons why we think I can't change anger, why I wouldn't even want to change anger. Because we have all these wrong assumptions. This is what Buddha is saying. With our minds, he says, are riddled with misconceptions, even simply about where the anger comes from. One, it's physical. Two, mummy did it. Three, it's just my natural state. And four, it's your fault. Do you see my point here? <laughs> they will prevent us from wanting to even look at the anger. Yeah, I know it's disturbed, but hey, you punched me. Do you see my point here? So we're obsessed with you better change. Then I'm going to feel better. So everything we do, all the assumptions we have now in our ordinary Western culture are removing us from even wanting to look at our anger. And then if we do, we feel guilty. So it's like whatever we do, we're kind of ridiculous, you know. So using Buddha's way of seeing, the thing we need to learn to do is learn, and this is where these meditation techniques come in, extremely helpful. If for no other reason to sit there attempting to watch your breath, and all you can see is your misery and all the chatter and the rubbish and the jealousy and the depression. You understand my point? It's vivid and clear, isn't it? But we need to see it, we need to observe it. You know? If you can't locate the cancer, how can you heal it? So we have to know, not only that I'm angry, because we only see it when it's at its grossest level, when it's shouting loud, you know? when it's just vomiting out the mouth. We've got to learn to see it, and this is the, this is the real Buddhist, distinctive Buddhist kind of skill, is to see, you know, with, with the techniques of doing simple concentration meditation, meditation, and doing them really well with kind of real discipline, you're learning to focus the mind, but what you're learning to do is see or hear all these all these emotional stuff. Like right? in the beginning, it's just loud noise, isn't it? Like this white noise or bat black noise. What do they call it? What's the opposite to the one they call white noise? Probably black noise. <laughs> anyway, you get my point. The noisy stuff. It's so there all the time. We just hear this blur, like traffic in the freeway from the distance. You understand? But with the techniques of these, you know, concentrating, you slowly start to distinguish. The different voices you hear them, you know, you learn to, and you learn to sort of pick them out and hear them when they're more and more quiet. So right now, because in our culture we don't have techniques for looking at our mind. Maybe we do a bit more, but when we, you know, when we were kids, I bet we didn't learn. Our mummy didn't teach us how to distinguish anger from this and that. And we'll learn about darling, and yes, you can change it. It's not your real nature. I mean, if we thought third this when we were children, we'd be amazing now, right? So we we haven't learned to listen. We only know we're angry now when it vomits out the mouth. We only know we're depressed and we can't get out of bed one morning, and then we know we better go off and find some serotonin pretty quick. But you know, all the Buddha's saying is, hey, we can learn to see our mind from the time we're kids, and learn to see our mind well before it gets to the very gross level, the gross emotional level. So this gets us to another. So one characteristic of the unhappy emotions is that they're disturbing to me, which implies that it's painful. I don't want to be disturbed. I don't want to suffer. I can change it. But the, the other one, the other one we learn to see, which gives us a tool to help change, is this other characteristic of the mind, which is very interesting. We don't think like this at all, but let's look at how this is true. And this is indicated by another term in Tibetan that for, for, these, for a synonym for these negative states of mind is the term delusion. Now if someone accused you of being delusional, you'd be very hurt right? Isn't it? And if we say, "Hey, my God, she's so delusional," we know what we mean. We know this person's in la la land in relation to reality. But it sounds shocking. But really, what Buddha is saying is, "Hey, you're all delusional. It's just a question of degree." And this is not a joke. It's actually exactly correct according to Buddha's way of seeing the mind. So let's look at that. Let's see how it's true. So, Okay. Um, let's say you know I'm as mad as. Let's say I'm angry with. What's your name? Oh. Manuel. Manuel. Okay, Manuel. Um, let's say Manuel punches me in the nose. You know, and I'm really angry. Right? Oh, I forgot, lost my point there. Sorry. What was I saying? Well, I'm sorry. Delusion. What? Delusion. delusion. Delu- yeah. Delu- thank you. Come on. It is true. Old age is true, isn't it? Any of you get old around here, you know, you you forget things. I do all the time. Now. I can't believe it. Okay. So delusional. So when. You know, when I'm mad at Manuel, just check this, I'm shouting and yelling and I'm upset and hurt. And when we think of anger, we think of the emotion. We see all this shouting and yelling, right? That's what we mean by anger. But if you, were to tra- if you were to tape what I was saying and then write it down, and then when I'm calmed down, I'd look at it, or you'd look at it later, you know. You're not hearing any shouting. You're not hearing emotion. But what you're doing is you're reading words, aren't you? And what am I saying? You did this. How dare you do that? I hate you. I will kill you. I. It is not my fault. What? You see my point? They're a series of thoughts. They are concepts, right? They are concepts. And when I'm mad at the man, well, all the emotion, but the words I'm saying are describing him as this monster, as the cause of all my suffering, and I hate him. I can't. Stay, all that kind of thing. Now, when I calm down later, because he's my friend, I'll be mortified because I'll realise what did I do? I was exaggerating. I was exaggerating Manuel's horribleness, you know. So all I'm saying here is that's what delusion is. When you've got an unhappy emotion in the mind, one of the results is that it's disturbing to you. It's very painful. And two is you're not in touch with reality. I mean, yes, he was mean to me. But someone, you know, you know him, and he's a nice guy, and he's not always mean, mean to me. So when, I'm, when you're angry, you're fixated on that one thing. You're obsessed with that one thing. You're obsessed with that one action. You define the whole of Manuel by that one action. And then you think, that is Manuel. Now, this is really what Buddha is saying is ignorance is, the root delusion of all. Ignorance is broadly this, the way we misconceive things. And this is the characteristic of all these unhappy emotions. They're, and it's, they're delusional. They're misconceptions. You know, I mean, look at the world. We are uh, just you know, again, talking over our coffee. For example, I mean we call it in this world racism. We call it this one. We call it whatever you guys suffer from. What's the word? Homophobic. What's the ism? Oh, no? Thank you very much as an ah. Okay, that one. <laughs> so you get my point. Thank you very much. I forgot the word. But do you understand my point here? We give labels to all these and what are they? If you've got a person who is racist, who is homophobic, if you analyze it with Buddha's model of the mind, very strong ignorance, which is very strong anger, vindictiveness, this, that, fear, they're all delusional, they're delusions, because you know when they're saying you are this and you are that, you're thinking, aren't you talking about me here, I know I'm not like that, do you understand my point, when I'm accusing, or even if Manuel didn't do anything and I'm accusing him of doing something, he's thinking, excuse me, I'm not like that, I didn't do that, Rabina, what is she saying, what is she seeing here, I'm seeing a thing that isn't true, right? Now you know when someone's saying something to you, or whoever it is. You get my point here, that these unhappy emotions, they're delusional. They're not accurate assessments of what's going on. And that is what Buddha's saying across the board, you know. So anger is one variation of them. Paranoia, depression, d- d- attachment, jealousy, they're all unhappy emotions. And if you look at them carefully, if you do some analysis on them, and we've got to be our own therapists. this is what the Buddha's deal We've got to really look into, not to see the loud noise, but to go into the into the character, the, the the structure of the concepts behind the noise that inform the noise, inform the emotion. This is the way Buddha sees the mind, and I we can hear this, you know. So we have to look into this very deeply and learn to see our own delusional states of mind, which are the ones that cause me so much pain. And how, and how they, each of them, how they function. The character of the jealousy. The, the story that jealousy is saying. The story that anger is saying. The story that attachment is saying. Attachment is the root one, you know. And, and then it's clear. that we, we know they're suffering. We don't go, oh yes, I was jealous yesterday and it was great. I mean, we know these words refer to the pain, you know. So Buddhists are saying they're not part of your being. They're not at the core of your being, surprisingly. We think they all are. They don't define you. They're real. Oh my gosh, the pollution's real. But it's not at the core of your being. This is the, stu- this is the fundamental point. That means it gives us great courage to want to investigate them and to learn to slowly change them. Now, when we know they're not just the big loud noise, which is the emotional one, then we know that they're conceptual. They're stories, elaborate stories that Buddha would say we've been telling for countless lives that we bring with us. We're already brainwashed with our stories from the time we're tiny kids. You know, we brought with us. This is the karmic business. So we've got this. So we need to deconstruct, you know, the mind, go way beyond the emotions, down to the quieter, more subtle level, to learn to see the construction, the story, the delusional story, which we believe is the truth, and that's the tragedy. It's sort of like one Lama, Lama over said, bad enough that we think Manuel is this or that. But the killer is that we believe it's true. Like the homophobic, like the racist, you know. No, you, no one can argue with them. They know they are right. You see my point here. But you know it's an elaborate conceptual construction that there's some, for whatever reason, they've made up and they're convinced they're right. That's what Buddha's saying we all do to one degree or another. Okay, all our delusions mightn't be institutionalized, called racist or homophobic, but they're all something-ist, you know, we're our own-ist. We've all got our own little delusional stuff, right? This is what Buddha's saying. So for our sake, which is the wisdom wing, and for the sake of others, which is the compassion wing, this is our job, you know. And of course, the, the major, the major, the biggest problem is, you know, let's say Manuel did harm me. No one can argue he didn't. But You saw it, you all saw it, he punched me, let's say. Mm-hmm. So the, the usual logic we have is, of course I'm angry man will punch me of course I'm suffering that person you know call me a a whatever they call you so it's true the world is a shitty place people do harmful things to each other to us there is no doubt Buddha's not arguing with that but what he is saying is this very empowering point yes but I can change I can suffer less by changing myself and this is what I get so powerful from people in prison I cannot tell you I think we talked about this last time I was here we're dealing with... I mean, we get like two, 300 letters a month now from so many people in prison. And we don't hear from the Martha Stewart's, believe me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like... We hear from all the guys who are the worst, the maximum securities, the ex gangsters, the junkies, the druggies, you know, every... We hear from the ones who've got really suffering lives. And we're, we're basically a Dharma centre, you know? We're a Buddhist centre, liberation prison project. But our people are in prison. And, and they're the ones who they're the kind of the ones who would never even hear the word Buddhism normally. It's kind of interesting actually, who've had garbage lives, incredible suffering, are in horrible situations now. You know, I mean, the, I was just talking this morning. The sentencing in this country, when I compare with Australia for example, is just depressing. You know, I mean, 30 years for the smallest thing is so common. And you go to these prisons, these. I mean, most of them are guys you write to. us kind of interestingly, you know, don't know why. 98% of the letters we get are from men for some reason. I don't know why. There's an enormous number of women in prison. But, you know, it's like they... they in these appalling situations with these long sentences, these young guys just did one or two things wrong. I mean, I've probably done worse things than some of these guys and they've got 30 years, you know, if not life. So there they are learning to accept their reality, learning to see there's no benefit in being angry, there's no benefit in resentment and bitterness because it will just, it is destroying them. And that's the first one about recognizing the suffering of our own delusions. That that itself is why we're suffering. Bad enough that Manuel punches me, my nose is bleeding. But my suffering is my anger, my fear, my resentment, my bitterness. And when you're in prison and you cannot open that gate, then you are forced onto your own mind. Forced, you either go insane or you're forced into yourself. You know, that's what I'm saying. Incredible. We often because we have the illusion of being free. We don't really think we're suffering, you know. But I'm sorry, you check with the relationship you're in right now and how horrible it is and how you feel paralysed by it and how you don't think you have any choices and you're obsessed with how that person should change and it's not my fault and for me. Well, like in prison, you know. I mean, I know when one, the first guy who ever wrote to us nine years ago, this young Mexican up in Pelican Bay, the, the top security prison in the state, right, where they have these security housing units 23 hours a day in these small cells with ten books, the inside of a pen the soft part, you know, uh, and a few photos and a television, and, you know, and earphones. And they're in there 23 hours a day, no windows, nothing. And then they have one hour in another cell, no windows or anything. And then many of them have got life in there. And this guy, he, he's been there since he's 18, in prison since he's 12, like a gangster guy. Three life sentences, not for killing anybody, just for a gang fight. And he's he would turn 21, and he'd become a Buddhist by then. And I asked Lama Zopa, my teacher, to send him a birthday card. So Rinpoche wrote him several cards, actually. And one of the things he said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said to him, your prison is nothing in comparison with the inner prison of ordinary people, the prison of attachment, prison of pride, prison of depression. And this is is the Buddha's deal, you know. This is the distinctive one of Buddha's idea of suffering. We often would think, well, I'm not suffering, you know. I'm I'm not in prison, I'm not depressed. I mean, I'm not, no, sorry, I'm not in prison, I'm not in a war zone no one's beating me up at this moment we think of the gross level and the first noble truth there are three kinds of suffering there's the suffering of suffering in your face suffering the stuff that we all agree on but we don't ever go past that one the second kind is the one that I have just talked about as Lama Zopa's referring to the subtler one coming from the mind the mental suffering I mean we'll go to India we'll see poverty we think we, that's suffering Tibetan lamas come here they see suffering because it's the mental one now you guys know about this because it's in your face right, right mainly coming from the outside world right You know, seeing you as a thing that you're not. So, but still, nevertheless, we don't often still think we're suffering. But the key one is is learning to look into these unhappy emotions and seeing how they are the source of our pain. Yes, the world is racist and homophobic. No one can argue. But the ones in prison, the one I'm getting at, yes, those gates are there. Yes, they're in prison wrongly. Yes, it's a long sentence. No, you're not the creep that they think you are. But hey, what can I do about it? I remember reading in a yoga magazine about one woman. I didn't read it very much. I saw a couple of quotes, and it blew my mind. This is exactly the point I'm talking about. She had a life. She was on death row somewhere, and was innocent. She got out after 17 years. But she came to this conclusion. In the beginning, unbelievable rage, because she she knew that what they were saying wasn't the truth. You know, which is what we all experience when it's painful. But she slowly became to realise. She started to read books about yoga and meditation and stuff. That. She said, I decided... Basically, she realized she couldn't open those gates. She couldn't change the judge's mind, the prosecutor's mind, the jury's mind, everybody else's mind. (coughs) That's clear. That was fixed in stone. But she finally realized what she could change was her own mind. And that's the one that I'm seeing many people in prison because it's in their face, you know. They can change their mind. So she said, I decided, I am not a prisoner. I am a monk. I am not in a cell. I'm in a cave. And she also, which I think is amazing, it shows her real self-respect, her dignity, she decided this practice was totally private. She didn't show it, you know. No one knew what she was doing. I mean, that shows an amazing human being, actually. But that's what I'm getting, variations of this. I mean, I'm not making them all like God, they're not, they're regular humans. But because when you're really up against it, we can all see this, when you're really back against the wall, you either go crazy or you start to look inside. And that's that's the Buddhist one. That's a distinctive one. So it's until we really recognize we're suffering. This is why Buddhism talks about suffering. Until you know you're suffering, you won't bother going to the doctor, will you? Until you know you're suffering, especially at this level, you won't ever try to look at your mind. You know, because as long as you can keep getting the nice coffee the nice this and the nice friend and the nice job and the nice that, which is alleviating your gross level of suffering, you're going to cop out and not even notice the subtle level. So it's only when we have painful stuff happening that all these guys in prison say it's their wake-up. It's been my wake-up call, they say. It's like a mantra, you know. The, the ones we know are seriously practicing in, in whatever level. And this is... Huh? Um, got to go, huh? Sorry. We're, um, we're coming Oh my to gosh, it is. I'm so sorry. And I've just... Uh, some
0: questions, maybe. Uh, yes, and uh, I mean, we maybe, maybe one it? or two questions, and would you be around after... Oh, happy to stay. Time? Oh, great. Okay. So maybe people, Is it
1: okay we got a bit over time? Is it, Are you really strict about your clock? Yeah, you are no we're
0: yeah. yes oh. we're not oh you are
1: you are strict <laughs> about your
0: I'm not strict about
1: it but. <laughs> who else put your hands up who's strict come on Uh-oh. so we've got to stop right now do we you know we we to oh okay well just a few, a few questions if you want maybe you got none so a few questions i never got into talking about attachment yet I'm sorry don't go into the details of it we never did we have to be we'll have you, to you back for sure okay so any about? questions
0: a couple of questions.
1: Will you come back soon five years? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be in town June, August, and September. So if you want me, I'm more than happy. We can do a little, maybe a little series of dealing with the delusions. Yeah, we will dealing yeah. with delusions or something. We can have. I'm happy to do. Yes. Go
0: on. I-, I loved your talk. It made me happy. So oh, good, good way of <laughs> suffering. So thank you. Um, and I also loved what you said about Buddhism. Being a great psychologist, yes. I, I, I just thought that was wonderful. I wanted to ask if, uh, if you could maybe mention a few of the resource centers for learning more about Tibetan Buddhism here in the city.
1: Well, yeah, the center. Okay, I'm. Um, the director of Liberation Prison Project. We share a big old Victorian on the corner of Oak and Webster with an, a, another Tibetan, a Tibetan Dharma centre that I'm connected with. It's part of the same organisation, the foundation, he said. It's called Chen Ling. It's uh, the 399 Webster. And there's this old lovely old Tibetan teacher there, monk, and there are Westerns who teach there. So that's one. The only one I know the address of is where I live, I'm afraid. I don't know any others. <laughs> so it's Sei Chen. TSE, anyway, say TSE, Chen Ling. Maybe we can write it down. 399 Webster. Okay. And they have, yeah, they have classes, two to three, like Sunday mornings, two nights a week there are teachings, and then there are teachings from Westerners as well. Oh, but That's one, anyway. There's, I think there are definitely others in, in the city. Yeah. Someone else? You okay, go? Well, no questions,
0: anyway. I... Yes. Mm. Uh, would you speak to the use of uh, evil in the world as a weapon or something? How do you mean the use of it? Well, it seems to me it's used as a concept that, that isn't valid in a lot of ways. And, and I don't you mean know, other people use the the
1: idea it, of it to make you fearful, that so we've got to go drop bombs on them. You mean that one? Well, okay, the Buddhist way of saying that really is that we've got all these trillions and trillions of consciousnesses called humans, let's say, and animals, all kinds. Buddha would say there are many kinds of beings in different forms. Let's just look at the human ones. There's a few billion human beings. We've all got a whole bunch of these different qualities in our minds, right? some positive, some negative. And we can clearly see, even in our own lives, not to mention other out there, there are some people who seem to have more negative ones than positive. Possibly, you know.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (coughs) So then you could say that's where evil is. Evil is not some abstract thing that exists out there separate from beings, really. But there can be a collection of it with a bunch of people all thinking the same way, and so they all drop bombs very well together, because they, you see my point, yes. all think they all should go shoot the other person. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So that's just the way Buddha would say, and suffer, so it's, okay, there's no time to talk about it now that we've a minute past our time, but yeah. this is <laughs> where the Karmic one comes in, and Buddha's explanations of how come the suffering, and why this, and why are we the people there, and why six million Jews got killed by the other millions who were called Nazis, and why, you understand my point. But in the end, the evil and good is just in consciousnesses, you know, and that, and that's why we suffer, and that's why we cause others to suffer. So it's not some abstract thing out there that sort of sounds fearful, which is all how we think. You, know? you understand what I'm saying? You know, it brings lots of fear, and it's just very superstitious. And that's that's delusional, would say that a way of talking about it. Rubina, oh,
0: <coughs> why don't I suggest that uh, close <coughs> down, and then people could come and, and maybe form a little circle, just for
1: a brief time more. For if a that's question. what you'd like, you do I'll, I'll do, do. I'll do. I'll do what you want. Okay. Great. Absolutely. Thank you so sure much. Sure thing. Okay or oh, we
0: can just sit out there or, or sit out do. there yeah, yeah okay have a great okay so we'll continue team. the conversation
1: okay can I sing a wee prayer to finish oh we'll May do I do that in just a oh moment. make your pardon uh, okay. we'll have
0: you do the dedication of merit at the end of the okay we got this all you know done. you got it all down way huh? <laughs> 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 you, you can tell
1: can't you <laughs> <laughs> well you can change <laughs> teachings, you don't go crazy. You go there at 7, he starts at 9, he'll finish at 3 in the morning. So you've got to go with real flexible mind, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with systems. Systems are good. Thank you so much. Um, We
0: we, uh, have uh, time for brief announcements.
1: Yes? A couple Sundays ago when we had our general meeting, we were looking for ideas where we could have more of a song and a sense of how we did it better. And one of the ideas was GBF at the movies. So I, um, I take it upon myself to do a GBF at the movies night. I have flyers on will hang outside. Uh, the movie I have picked, The Wild Paris in Telegraph Hill, I, I heard is a great book. Um. And it's uh, something Friday night, uh, and, and I have flyers to so describe the details here. Or else, my phone number's in the newsletter talking about this. You can call me, or else I'm also I'll mess on the Yahoo site. But anyway, I think it would be a fun way for us to get to know each other a little better and, and to socialize and see a nice movie if you're interested. And please don't take a flight out of you're interested, because I only have three.
0: Great, thank you. Um, I thought I saw Lee here. Maybe yes. Do you uh, want to an ask? So there's a GBF potluck tonight at my place, and all of you are welcome. We'll spread you out if you all come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are flyers outside. It's four and a half blocks up the hill on 17th Street in front of the Arco station. It's four and a half blocks up from Castro and Market. Uh, it's generally not too difficult to park around there. And people are invited at 6.30. And the flyer says we'll eat at 7.00, but we'll eat whenever we eat. Great. Thank you. Yes? <coughs> My name is Don and uh, for those of you, don't, you know, I'm the coordinator of outreach business uh, for the fellowship, and I have 40 of
1: those, Wonderful, wow. Which we have a month. Amazing.
0: Um, and so, uh, keeping with our custom, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that we will have a mail opening for me. So that, that's what we
1: do. Fantastic. Uh, once a
0: month. Brilliant. A number of people sitting down. We all read the labs. So good. And okay. then figure out how we're going to respond.
1: Well, may I just say to you that we are very, very happy to support you with books. We've got like a, a stock of like 280 titles, and we're very—we like to be generous with books. So you, well, absolutely, any time. I have referred people to you. Good. So that
0: was never directed,
1: Good. All right. Yes. I have met Miss that, Tova. That's right. She, yeah, that's used, yeah, that's right. She used to work at the AIDS her. That's right. Uh, so I'm just saying. Uh, anyway.
0: Brilliant. That's wonderful. Well, have a group Fantastic. That we'll Called, uh, the substance of the Great. Very good. Uh, I do want to say that uh, I have uh, we send through the prisoners <clears throat> very uh, um, very often when we want to see what we're about or past those letters. We I have copies of the two speeches oh, yeah. five years ago. Oh gosh.
1: Okay. I, oh, I remember now. I remember. Now. One. You did. I remember now. I do. You did. I remember. That's it. Yes. Good. Okay. I'm glad to be open.
0: Okay. Um, now, the other thing I just wanted to mention: the uh, facilitators open up at 10 o'clock in the morning, and you're invited to come anytime after 10. Uh, we had so many people arriving just after, actually 10:30 today. We could try and get, like, maybe the bulk of us here by 10.15, it's a nice time to kind of settle in So, hope I don't sound too little for that. <laughs> um, and the other thing is, we do have to keep this door open. I know it's kind of a bother, but the, the center says that since we have the front door unlocked, we need to have it open. Okay, um, let's all stand and form a shape. Can you, can you do the uh, dedication of marriage? Oh, yes.
1: Me, you mean. Yes, yes. Say something. Okay. All right. Where are we? So just, I'm going to sing a prayer in Tibetan, but sort of what it's saying, very loosely, it's saying that here we've all been, hour, you know, hour together, hour and a half, in the last hour anyway, listening, each of us th- listening, thinking in our own ways. And so each of these thoughts has been a seed we've planted. Every thought really counts, you know. That this is what karma means, action, a seed we've planted. So well, may we, we, this prayer is saying, may these seeds ripen. As quickly as possible in the development of our own amazing potential for the sake of every living being. And the second little prayer just makes the aspiration that uh, compassion grow and grow. I'll just sing in Tibetan. Showsem chogrin poche ma kepanam kegu chick kepanam pa me payam kong ne kong du pa show, thanks everybody very much. Happy to be here. See all you loving mm-hmm. gentlemen